Esther, thanks for coming on the Judgment Call podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thank thanks you. for taking the time. Pleasure. Pleasure to join you. Thank you. You have been researching for quite some time in a field that, and I'm quoting you, um, 20 or 25 years ago was seen as crazy talk, right? And the field <laughs> you're, you're up to is really finding that connection between mind and body and between also spaces and the body, which very few doctors really venture into. Maybe you can illuminate that a little bit for us, how you got started with, with this and what gave you the conviction to execute on it? Uh, it's a great question. So first of all, I don't think I ever said it was crazy, but uh, there's no question that when I first started in the field in 1980 is when I first started doing this, um, that the parent disciplines in the biomedical field of what is now known as the science of the mind-body connection, the parent disciplines of neuroscience, immunology, and endocrinology did not believe that the brain and the immune system could talk to each other. Uh, they did not believe that stress could make you sick. It's something your grandmother told you, but there wasn't evidence in the scientific literature. And in my first book, The Balance Within, The Science Connecting Health and Emotions, uh, I explore that question. Why is it that in Western medicine, uh, these notions that were accepted for thousands of years, that stress can make you sick, that believing can make you well, uh, that if you have a, an intact connection between the brain and the immune system, that you are healthy. And if that connection is broken, you get disease. Western medicine rejected it or, well, they didn't, they didn't just ignore it. They, I, over and over again in my career, I had my supervisors tell me, you're going to ruin your career, Esther, by studying this, or you'll do this when grass grows here on this hand. Um, and, um, and so I explore that question. Part of it is it was in the popular culture. And part of it is that until the late uh, 1900s, until about, well, 1990s, uh, we didn't have the technologies to really, in real time, see, literally see the brain working at its tasks in using brain imaging. We didn't have the molecular biology, we didn't have the, the tools in immunology to really measure how the immune system was responding and how the molecules of the immune system could affect the brain. So we didn't really, we weren't able to measure, we didn't have the technologies to measure this communication between the brain and the immune system, which is a two-way communication. The brain sends sing signals to the immune system that in turn uh, changes how the immune system does its job and the immune system sends signals to the brain that changes the way the brain functions and changes your moods. So you asked me, well, how did I get started and what gave me the conviction? It was a single patient. I saw a single patient at the end of my training in rheumatology, the last, it was actually Christmas Eve uh, in 1979, I think it was. And I was called to see a patient who had been treated for a very rare and lethal form of epilepsy with a drug that changed brain serotonin. Now, it's not one of the drugs that we have today, um, but he developed an autoimmune scarring inflammatory disease that looked like what we call scleroderma. And um, he, was, he was encased in, a, in, in sort of a scarring of his whole 
body. He couldn't extend his elbows. He, he was in excruciating pain. He couldn't extend his knees. The, the sheets were tended up over his, over his uh, legs so that they didn't touch his skin. He was in so much pain. So I was convinced from that moment on that if you do something to the brain, you can affect the immune system. And so I then switched from a uh, clinical career. I was going to be uh, a clinical rheumatologist in the uh, family practice clinic that I had worked in before. And I switched to a career of research, trying to figure out how the brain and the immune system talk to each other. And my original explanation for this condition that I saw in the patient turned out to be wrong. Um, but in the course of doing the research, I discovered that the brain's stress center, and this is what I was at the National Institutes of Health um, prior to coming to the University of Arizona here in Tucson, I was at the National Institutes of Health in the intramural research program for 26 years as a senior scientist and then section chief. And in 1989, I discovered that the brain's stress center the hypothalamus, is very important in susceptibility to autoimmune inflammatory diseases like arthritis in rats. Now, if you can prove that in rats, and you can prove it molecularly, neuroanatomically, neuroendocrinologically, with hormones, cells, molecules, if you can prove that in rats, it gives a basis for the science of the mind-body connection in humans. So it explains how stress can make you sick, how believing can make you well, uh, and, and really that this connection between the brain and the immune system is essential for health. And so that, that single patient and what I saw gave me the conviction to push ahead and do this research despite the um, pushback that I received, the real pushback from my, um, my uh, supervisors. I did have a, a few mentors along the way, and that's really, really important. Without the few mentors, the head of immunology, um, allergy and immunology at McGill at the Royal Victoria Hospital uh, was really believed in, in me and in this and um, other mentors along the way, including my father, I should add. My father was a physician and research scientist who was one of the pioneers of nuclear medicine. Uh, he had survived a concentration camp during the war um, in, he was in, uh, from Romania and he, he was uh, in a concentration camp in Russia during the war, found his way to Paris after the war and worked uh, under Pierre Joliot-Curie uh, looking for um, um, peaceful uses for radiation and radiation biology. And then came to Montreal, and um, which is where I was born and grew up. Um, and and he, he, was, um, he really believed in public health and he really supported me in, in everything I did. And that was really important too. Yeah, I mean, looking back and maybe give us a little bit of an, of an idea what the current understanding is, how does the immune system coordinate and uh, talk to the brain? What, what, what is this two-way channel that you found, about and did, found out about and did research over the last 30 years? How does it actually transpire from our current understanding? 
So, so I should say I wasn't the only one, of course. There, there were others at that time who were looking at the question from different angles, depending upon their expertise. So there were neuroscientists, Suzanne and David Felton, who were using neuroscience techniques to trace uh, the innervation of immune organs by uh, nerves, by uh, adrenaline-like nerves. So they were able to show that the spleen and the thymus uh, um, are, are deeply innervated by, by nerves and that the nerves touch immune cells and that the neurotransmitters that are released from nerve, nerve cells uh, affect how immune cells function. I was coming at it from a neuroendocrine point of view, which is I was working with neuroendocrinologists at the National Institutes of Health who were expert in hormones of the stress response. So when you're stressed, uh, a whole cascade of, of hormones gets triggered in your brain and throughout the body. So there's this brain stress center, the hypothalamus, which is kind of right at the back, right underneath your skull, just behind your nose. Yeah. And uh, that releases a stress hormone called corticotropin releasing hormone, which then goes to the pituitary gland, which hangs like a cherry right behind your nose uh, in just underneath the brain. And uh, that gland releases another hormone called ACTH, which goes through the bloodstream and uh, causes the adrenal glands to release the stress hormone cortisol. Now, anybody who's used cortisone cream for a poison ivy rash or cortisone nose spray for allergic rhinitis uh, knows that cortisone is one of the most potent anti-inflammatory drugs that our body makes. Cortisol, when it's released during your stress response, it tamps down the ability of the immune system to do its job. It turns down that activity of those uh, immune cells. And so that's one part of the stress response and how the brain affects the immune system. The other is the one I mentioned where the actual nerves uh, uh, that innervate the immune organs uh, release adrenaline and adrenaline-like uh, molecules that also affect how uh, the immune cells function. At the same time, in the other direction, immune cells release their own molecules called cytokines or interleukins. Um, that's been in the news a lot lately, you know, the cytokine storm related to COVID. That all comes from immune cells releasing their own molecules. Ordinarily, the reason that immune cells are releasing these molecules is because when, they're, when the body is confronted with, a, with an invader, there's a kind of a battle that goes on and, and there are different waves of, of soldiers, of immune cell soldiers that, uh, that come to the site of the uh, invasion. So say you get a, a cut uh, in your skin and there are waves of different kinds of immune cells that come in to the site, first of all, to clean it up, then to repair it and cause the scarring. And in order to get the different waves of immune cell soldiers coming into the site, the immune cells have to send signals to other cells, which are these cytokines and uh, interleukins. Interleukin just means between white blood cells. And, uh, and so there are all these molecules floating around when you're infected or inflamed. And it turns out that those molecules go through the bloodstream and affect how the brain functions. So when you're um, when you have a flu, when you're tired, when you're when you have fever, it's not the fever that makes you want to sleep. 
It's the immune molecules, the interleukins, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, that go to the brain and make you want to sleep. It, you lose your appetite because of these immune molecules. Um, it's all a protective way that the body has of helping to conserve energy in order to fight infection and to repair. The problem occurs if it goes on too long or too too much, and you, you end up with the kind of thing that we saw with COVID of a cytokine storm where the body ends up turning on itself, and, and that's harmful. Yeah. I'm fascinated how complicated that machinery inside our bodies is, right, and how, how sensitive sure. it seems and uh, how well it works in, in most of the time, right? It's, it's, it's always fascinating when we learn about another part of the body, so to speak, that we didn't know, another transmitter, another chemical, and we realize, whoa, someone with a lot of foresight must have designed this, right? <laughs> Evolution. It's really remarkable. It's really remarkable. And I agree with you. It's remarkable that it, it, it works so well most of the time. We only notice when it's not working. Yeah. Another, I mean, you mentioned that earlier, that's how you started out. Arthritis is one of those autoimmune diseases, right? So yes. From what I understand, it's the immune system is too bored and it kind of finds an enemy in your own body and then uh, arthritis yeah. starts. Is that what's happening? Well, okay. So first of all, when you say the word arthritis, it's like saying the word sports. You know, there's many different kinds of sports. There's many different kinds of arthritis. There's many different... Um, uh, causes to the different kinds of arthritis. So there's osteoarthritis, which is wear and tear arthritis. Pretty much every one of us has some degree of wear and tear osteoarthritis in our joints uh, as we age, past age, say, 25. Um, and, uh, you know, you can have more wear and tear depending upon what you do. If, if you're on your knees a lot, if you're jogging and there's a lot of injury to the knees, then, then you're going to get more osteoarthritis there. Um, the kind of arthritis that, that we're talking about is inflammatory arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, ankylosing spondylitis is another one. Um, so there's a number of different autoimmune diseases. Uh, they're autoimmune and inflammatory diseases where it is true the immune system turns on itself, turns on, on you, and, um, and, and they are, um, uh, the, whether you get or the degree to, to which you get this inflammation and when you get it and whether you get it depends on a, the load of genes that you have. So none of these diseases except for ankylosing spondylitis, where there's one dominant gene for, for that, um, most autoimmune inflammatory diseases are caused by many genes. In the case of rheumatoid arthritis and the rats that we were studying, <clears throat> 15 different, um, 20 different genes on 15 different chromosomes. Um, <clears throat> and each gene contributes a very little amount to whether or not you're going to get the disease. Um, and, and, it depends on your load of genes. So for example, the, the rats that we were studying back when I discovered this brain immune connection, um, there was one strain of rats that was highly resistant to getting any autoimmune disease, no matter what they were exposed to. And there was the cousins, very close cousins that were highly susceptible to getting autoimmune inflammatory diseases like uh, that looked like rheumatoid arthritis, that looked that was like um, thyroiditis, um, multiple sclerosis. The pattern of those 
autoimmune diseases that those rats got depended upon the uh, the inflammatory trigger to which they were exposed. Um, so streptococcal cell walls, bits and pieces of ground up streptococcal bacteria in those rats triggered something that looked like human rheumatoid arthritis with the same kind of joint changes um, as we see in, in human rheumatoid arthritis. And, um, and yet, if you gave the same dose, the same amount of streptococcal bacterial cell walls to the uh, resistant rats, they didn't get anything. Um, and it had to do with their genes. So, yeah. so it's a balance between how much of the inflammatory trigger you're exposed to and, and your, your genes that you inherit. Um, I happen to have a lot of these genes. I have a family history of, of many different kinds of arthritis. Um, I don't think I went into rheumatology because of that. Uh, I didn't really know about it fully uh, when I chose this field. But, um, but there's no question that I have a tendency to autoimmune inflammatory disease, uh, which I came down with um, an autoimmune inflammatory arthritis after a period of extreme stress. Um, and uh, interestingly, about nine years after I made this discovery between the brain, the brain stress center and arthritis, I go through a period of stress. I, I developed arthritis. It is not a coincidence that I developed it at that moment in time, because if you are chronically stressed, it can, in some cases, trigger the onset of some of these diseases. But yeah, I had to have the genes. Yeah. I had to have the genes in order to to have that reaction. Yeah, there is this, there is this, I'd say, popular science um, theory that we we see more autoimmune diseases because we don't have enough pathogens, right? So we don't we don't have the amount of bacteria, we don't have the amount of viruses that we we, we all had to fight against. Now we have we disinfect everything. Now with COVID, of course, that's another level. Yeah. But even before that. We, we were really getting better in public health. And the, the, the theory is, and you just said, there needs to be an additional trigger in order to, to, to get this response to work. But the theory is, uh, from, from my point of view, is that we, we've, we've been so successful in getting rid of these pathogens, so now our body needs to, I don't know, try out if the immune system still works, right? And, and eats our joints up. Is that something that... that that doctors believe and scientists believe too, or that's just well, popular science? No, I, there is some, there is a field of research. It doesn't happen to be by my field um, uh, where it's, this is, this is one of the, um, the, the hypotheses. Um, I, uh, what I can tell you is that there are good germs and bad germs. You know, we have a micro, what we call a microbiome on every part of our body, inside, outside, uh, you can think of it as a, an ecosystem like a forest with lots of different plants. Um, and uh, you have a, lots of different germs, most of which are good, good microbes uh, on your skin, in your gut, in your mouth. There's even a microbiome of place. Um, you know, there are different germs. Uh, you, you can't completely sterilize a place. And, and there's different germs on different surfaces, uh, on the window, uh, on the door, in, in the dark corners of the room, because it's a different temperature and a different environment. Um, 
so you can't get rid of these germs. Most of them are good germs. And one of the theories is that if you get rid of the good germs, then the bad ones can come in and take, take root. Um, and so that's, that's something that we're learning more about. And, and again, it's not my area of expertise, but there is a whole, a whole domain of, ex, of research called um, uh, about the microbiome. Yeah, it seems to be an eternal back and forth, right? So there is this 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 entropy and there's viruses that that want to propagate their own DNA, right? And there's bacteria, and that's we don't know when. And we see this now with COVID as a new virus. We don't, which is obviously a mutation from something that was there before. But we don't know yet if this is something that we can purposefully use, right? So I think these things develop over time. That we see a bad bacteria, we make use of it, we adapt to it. It becomes a good bacteria. And then, you know, we wait for the next mutation to come, right? I think this is, we all live in this, this whole world together, even with the bacteria, right? So they, they help us sometimes, but we don't know that yet because, because probably they kill a lot of us. Or, or well, I mean, there's no question that you have to have a healthy microbiome in your gut in order to digest well. Um, and, uh, and probably what happens in chronic stress, and I'll bring the conversation back to stress because that's my expertise, um, because of the cortisol that you're releasing, uh, you are changing the microbiome of the gut. And, and there's certainly um, stress-related gut uh, infections that can occur uh, when the good when the good bacteria or the good bi microbiome is overtaken uh, by, by the bad. But so there's a lot of interplay between all the different hormones of the stress response, the neurotransmitters of the stress response, and, uh, and the, uh, the environment of your body and, uh, and around. Yeah, that's, I think, the topic of your second book, right? What you just um, put out there. Yes. It's, it's really about how places, how our specific environment um, influences our well-being. And you gave me two really good examples when we spoke earlier. Maybe, maybe, you, can, maybe you can help us understand that a little more. Uh, well, I don't know which examples I gave you, but <laughs> we can the remind one, the me. The one, obviously, you know, that's the, uh, the, uh, the um, I think, also in popular culture now, well-known tree in the hospital, right? So hospital oh, yes. patients who yeah, have access okay. to to uh, nature Alden's at study. least yes. at least outside a day usually have a better path um, right. to recuperation and the other one was the, the the sound effects in specific work environments that change people's behavior yes. and their stress and in turn their health yeah so so yes in my book healing spaces the science of place and well-being I, I explore how everything that you're exposed to in your environment what you see and hear and smell and touch and taste and do in a space can affect all aspects of health. Now, health is not a noun. Health is a verb. Health is uh, a, an active process. And you have physical health and you have emotional health and, and well-being. So well-being is sort of the totality of your physical and emotional health. And there's no question that everything to which you're exposed to in the environment at every moment of the day and night affects all of those aspects of health that we were talking about from the genome to the metabolome. So all those metabolites that your body makes to the physiological responses, the cells within the body, um, the, uh, the behavior, your behaviors, and your psychosocial interactions. So 
everything that you hear and see and smell and touch and do and taste in a space will affect all those aspects of health and well-being. And it's, it's very clear that um, uh, different elements of the physical environment can stress and different elements can calm. So what are the elements that stress? Loud noises, foul odors, um, bright light, glare, um, temperature and humidity outside the comfort range, too dry or too wet, um, and mazes. Mazes are um, you know, types of, of structures where you don't see where you're going. You, you, you have to make many decisions at decision points in order to get from point A to point B. Think of an airport, think of a hospital. It's very stressful. Um, on the other hand, the same, those same elements can calm. So calming nature sounds, um, dim or uh, uh, diffuse lighting, circadian light that follows the rhythms of the sun, bright sunlight in the morning and uh, redder, dark, uh, lower level light in the evening. Um, um, nature fragrances, natural fragrances, not fake ones, but you know the smell of citrus or uh, jasmine, uh, calming. La uh, lavender is very calming. And then there are um, labyrinths, which are different from mazes. A labyrinth is a pattern on the floor uh, they're very ancient patterns. They're thought to have been maybe in the ancient world patterns of a, of a dance. Certainly in the mid, uh, medieval times, the monks used them for uh, walking meditation. And, um, and, and uh, all of those elements of the built environment and the natural environment can calm. We call, there's a field called biophilia love of nature, love of seeing nature and being in nature is very calming, very good for the soul. Um, so the, the study that uh, you mentioned is Roger Ulrich was really a pioneer of the field of, of environmental uh, design, who did a study, a landmark study in 1984 uh, in hospital patients recovering from gallbladder surgery. And uh, he found that the patients who had a view of a grove of trees uh, were uh, spent less time in hospital. They were discharged one day sooner. They needed less pain medication and uh, they had better moods than the people who had a view of a brick wall. And that kind of study has been reproduced over and over and over again. And uh, we know that looking at nature, we don't know exactly why, but looking at nature and being in nature uh, is very calming and, and uh, induces a, a positive mental state. It's thought that um, the uh, part of the reason may be that the part of the brain that recognizes a beautiful view uh, is rich in endorphins in those feel-good molecules. So it's possible that when you see a beautiful view, you are giving yourself a shot of endorphins uh, because that part of the brain becomes activated. Yeah. Well, I, I always wondered where these archetypes come from, right? So we, I think all of us have, have this idea of the salty sea, the smell of salt, right? When we go to an ocean and we immediately love it. And, we, we, we want to experience the sun, the cold water, the hot rocks. That's something, I, maybe that's, but I wonder how this is actually being stored. It's a very concrete memory. And it must have been thousands, hundreds of thousands of years put into our DNA and survived somehow 
and it's there when we're 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 babies, right? Even people who've never even heard of the sea, who've never seen of an ocean, they dream of that scenario. And if if you show it to them, they like it. Overwhelming majority, even if they had no prior exposure. I wonder how this works. Are there studies that that came closer to these archetypes? Yeah. So the so one of the studies of looking at beautiful views. Uh, was done by uh, a scientist at University of Southern California who did brain imaging uh, on people looking at different kinds of views, a view of a smokestack, uh, a view of a, a, you know, nature, of mountains, and so on. And it's true, universally across cultures, across ages, gender, uh, socioeconomic level, people prefer to look at a view of nature. In fact, if you, uh, if you Google uh, the word paradise and images of paradise on, on Google, uh, millions and millions, if not tens of millions or hundreds of millions of images come up that are all views of nature, virtually all mm. of them. So there's something about views of nature that really we all prefer. Um, and and um, so what happens when, and I went through this, I, I did a public television, a PBS television spe special called The Science of Healing, where I myself went through the various uh, labs and, and was tested. Um, and I, I was in the MRI machine and looking at slides and clicking whether I preferred a view or not. And it was really amazing to see that part of my brain light up. Uh, that was rich in endorphins uh, that recognizes beautiful views. So, yeah, we're hardwired in some way to, to prefer uh, views of nature. Uh, you, you talked about odors and fragrances and smells. There are two ways that fragrances affect uh, the brain. One is an actual chemical interaction. So uh, when you inhale an, an odor, um, you're actually inhaling molecules of that odor. They're volatile organic compounds that, um, that actually then directly affect the brain functions. So um, uh, uh, lavender, as I mentioned, really does put you to sleep. It relaxes you. If you inhale a little bit of the essential oil, lavender, it relaxes you. There have been studies in anesthetized rats that show that the rats go into deep sleep when they are exposed to lavender. So that's not something that the rats learned. It's not something that, uh, you know, they went to a psychotherapist to understand. Um, you know, this is a chemical reaction. Um, on the other hand, other kinds of fragrances and odors are more personal and they are learned by associations. So just as Pavlov's dogs, um, you know, learn to associate the sound of a bell with the steak and then salivate, you know, anybody has a dog or a cat and you use the can opener and suddenly they come running and they're ready to eat. That's conditioning. That's associating a certain uh, sound or uh, smell in the environment with a physiological response, in this case, salivation. Um, and so the, um, you know, we, we can learn, it's just like also Proust's Madeleine uh, in, in uh, you know, the French uh, author of the 19th century, where he describes how he tasted some uh, cookie with, with tea and it brought this warm, wonderful feeling to him and he couldn't place it and he tried it again and he tried it again and finally he remembered that his aunt used to give him that kind of cookie with tea when he was sick and she would take him in her arms and calm him as a child. 
So there is an association, a learned association between certain fragrances and odors that will bring on certain emotions in what I just described, positive emotions, but it can be the other way around. You can have an association of a certain fragrance or, or smell with a negative emotion and it can be just as powerful. Yeah, I think um, a lot of retail shops have realized this. When yes. you go to certain retail <laughs> brands, it's a specific smell, and you immediately realize, okay, I've been there a year ago, even if it was a different city. I think there's one, it's a clothing store, forget the brand, um, who has a they have very strong perfume. It's kind of dark, music like a nightclub. Uh-huh. Um, it's made more for, for for the younger generation, but they really play with this, and it's, it's like... Um, I think hotel chains have done this too. They have this specific. Well, there's no smell. question. You walk into a hotel lobby or spas are very good at this. And yeah. if it's a hotel in the mountains, you smell pine. And the, if it's in the ocean, you smell the smell of oceans. You know, so yes, the the enter, the entertainment and the uh, the hotel industry are really very very good at this. Yeah. Yeah, there is something to it. And it's a different kind of the memory because you can't access it. If you ask me now how this particular hotel typically smells or this chain, I have no idea. But if I walk yeah. into one of those places, I smell, oh, this is the chain of, I don't know, yeah. this is Hilton yeah. or this is one particular Hilton brand. This is how yeah. it always smells. Right. So it's a very different right. part of the brain. It's very difficult to access. When when we look at all these these sensors, and you, you talked about that earlier, we, we have so many things that affect us. Um, and this is sounds and this is smells, but we also get a lot of, and I have my Apple Watch here, we get a lot of new, new sensors, right? They're talking about the glucose for the next generation, maybe even blood pressure. Maybe smell is going to be there too in five years from now or 10 years from now. How, how does data and big tech influence science and, and medicine at that point? Because once we can measure all these things, right, we can make it more predictable and we can give better specific recommendations. Right. Well, this is how we conducted our studies uh, with the U.S. General Services Administration, using wearable devices to measure the impact of up to 11 different environmental attributes on different aspects of health. So when I was at the National Institutes of Health, I started working with Kevin Campshire, who's now Director of High Performance Federal Green Buildings at the U.S. General Services Administration. The GSA is the agency of the federal government that uh, builds and operates all non-military federal buildings, over 370 million square feet of space for over a million office workers. And Kevin Campshire came to me when I was at NIH and said, can you help us to understand how uh, the different aspects of the office spaces that we're designing impact different aspects of health? We want our workers to be healthy, happy, and productive. And so we started back then, um, about 21 years ago, using wearable devices. And you can imagine back 20 years ago, they were clunky dinosaurs with wires hanging off and uh, sticky things on your chest. And um, so we measured different aspects of the stress response. Uh, we, the, 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 the way that all of these devices measure your stress and relaxation response is based on your heart rate and your heart rate variability, the variability of the time between the beats. And using mathematical algorithms, you can take that information, the variability between the beats, and 
uh, turn it into an understanding of, of your stress response and the opposite, your relaxation response. Because just as I described the, the hormones and nerves of the stress response that kick in when you're stressed, there's, there are also relaxation response nerves. Uh, the vagus nerve is the main one. And the, the, real, the way to, to turn that nerve on is uh, to do deep breathing. So if you breathe deeply, you're immediately engaging your vagus nerve, which immediately slows your heart rate and increases the variability between the beats. And that's your relaxation response. So, so you uh, want high, high variability or yes, low? Yes, exactly. You want high variability. Oh, no. It's counterintuitive okay. because most people think, oh, high heart rate, then I'm stressed. But uh, no, high variability between the beats is a healthy uh, pattern. Okay. So, um, so you, um, when we when we engage that relaxation response, it puts a break on the stress response, and that's a quick way to to reduce your stress in the moment. Now, I want to make a point that the goal should not be to get rid of stress. You need your stress response to survive. People have tried to make transgenic animals without a stress response. It doesn't work. It is not compatible with life. Because, well, what happened to them? What happened to these transgenic animals? Like, they, they, uh, their genes they are modified, they, right? They, don't, they, they die. So if you have uh, a, from fruit flies to fish to mice to rats to cats to human, everything in between, you need your stress response in order to be vigilant, to fight or flee when there is an invader or when you're confronted with a threat. And yeah. Your stress response gives you the energy to function at peak. The problem occurs if your stress response goes on too long when the threat is no longer there or it stays high uh, it's, or it's too high uh, for too long of a period. And that's when you fail, when your performance fails. So the goal is to get your stress response right into the middle. I talk about it like a rainbow. Um, if you think about a rainbow here, and to my left, it's uh, I'd be lying down, I'd be uh, reading a book, I'd be dreaming about being at the beach, I would be very relaxed, you, Torsten, would be very stressed, uh, your listeners would be very bored, and, uh, and I not, have to yes. get... I would have to get my stress response up just enough to perform at peak. The problem occurs if my stress response becomes too high and I fall over the edge of that rainbow and my performance fails. And that's a problem. So the goal of all of these mind-body techniques is to move the needle back so that you're performing at peak for the task at hand. If you're at a spa, yes, you want to be sleeping and lying down and your stress response very low. But if I'm speaking to you or performing a task, I want my stress response just right. So yeah. for example, just before we came on, I was having a bit of trouble connecting to this, uh, this link. Uh, internet stuff is always extremely stressful, especially when the connections are not great. And boy, I can tell you my stress response was really, really high. So I had to just do a little bit of deep breathing to get myself calm and get myself back into the middle. Um, and, and you can do that in the moment instantaneously. When you say peak performance and we need stress, 
what does that mean in percentages? So if we, I, I know that I feel like I have certain thoughts that I wouldn't have had without caffeine. So caffeine gave me that, that, that push over the edge, right? And yeah. Writers say this, they need drugs, simple drugs like nicotine and alcohol, but also more, you know, going towards LSD in order to get this, this last edge to be better than anyone else, like to, to be, be that person on the planet who figures it out, right? But if we talk about performance between stress and relaxation or between just in the middle, just average, what are we talking about? Is this performance like 10 times better? Is it is it 20% better? What is like I, a typical measurement? Can, yeah, I don't think you can generalize. Um, so let me get back to the question about the built environment and how that can affect this stress in the middle or too much. Um, yeah. So... Uh, with and, and I'll give you percentages in the in the context of that. Uh, when we did the studies more recently, so let me get back to the first study that we published with the GSA in uh, 2010. We looked at uh, about 70 office workers in a building that was being retrofitted, and uh, the um, uh, so the people were in the same uh, space in the same building. But in the old space, it was dark, it was musty, high-walled cubicles, they couldn't see the light, they couldn't see the windows, high mechanical noise. And then we measured the same uh, workers uh, in the new space, and, uh, and that space had beautiful views, lots of daylight, uh, lower mechanical noise, fresh air turnover, and uh, we were able to measure on two measures of the stress response, that heart rate variability and the salivary cortisol, that these workers were significantly less stressed even when they went home at night and while they were sleeping, when they were in the new space. And yet when we asked them about this, whether they felt stressed or not in the different spaces, they were not consciously aware of it. We are generally not aware of how the physical environment affects our stress response, but our stress response is aware of it. So when I came to the University of Arizona, we continued these studies using state-of-the-art wearable devices, uh, a, a small chest-worn device, and also working with a company in the Bay Area called Acclima, we measured up to 11 different environmental attributes, sound, light, volatile organic compounds, carbon dioxide, which is what you breathe out, not carbon monoxide, but it's the gas you breathe out, carbon dioxide, um, uh, and, and so on, particulates and so on, temperature and humidity. And we have a whole series of studies where we were able to show that various elements of the, of the physical environment do impact the stress response, in some cases up to 25% higher. Um, so for example, um, relative humidity, um, when it's too dry, it's not good. When it's too wet, it's not good. So if it's less than 30% relative humidity, we found that the stress response was 25% higher in people in very dry conditions. Similarly, people in very wet conditions, greater than 60% relative humidity, the stress response was higher. We found that the layout of offices affected the stress response. So um, open office design, which I can explain to you more about, but people, people are up in arms, they hate their open offices. But open office design, which is really more active office design with lots of choices of where to sit, 
to sit in quiet, small areas, in, um, in larger gathering spaces, in open spaces with bench seating where you have lots of sunlight coming in. So the people in the open office design were um, significantly more active during the day, 32% more active than people in private offices, 22% more active than people in cubicles. And those people who were more active during the day were significantly less stressed uh, at night. They also had better sleep quality. They fell asleep faster, they had better sleep quality, and they had better moods upon awakening. Um, circadian light is very important. So bright sunlight between 8 a.m. and 12 noon is very important for healthy sleep. Also to fall asleep faster, to have better moods and to have a better quality of sleep. Um, noise, uh, we talked earlier about noise. One of the big distractors that people complain about in open office uh, uh, settings is noise. But it turns out when it's too quiet, it's also not good. Um, and if it's too noisy, it's not good. So there is this sort of, again, a, a rainbow, an inverted U-shaped curve for yes. what is uh, comfortable uh, for people's stress response. But for it's for every person, it's different, right? You say it's 25% different. What some, for some person we'd say is, 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 their, is their normal, is for someone is an elevated response would be, we would, in, we would assume that person is stressed, right? So we... We, we, it, it's really dependent that when we think about performance, it's really dependent on your own base level, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so where, where the studies are going now, you know, these, the, we build on each study builds on another one. Individual differences are a huge, huge uh, variable. And one, one of the things we're learning from these studies of the office space and office design is one size does not fit all. You cannot design a whole building to make everybody comfortable. There, of course, there are certain things that are universal. Carbon dioxide, for example. The longer, uh, the more people in, an, in a space, the longer they are in the space and the poorer the ventilation and air turnover, fresh air exchange, the higher the carbon dioxide will be in the space. So what we're learning is that much lower levels of carbon dioxide than were thought before actually affect uh, your cognitive performance and fatigue. So at about 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide, you're fully, you're functioning at 100%. At 950 parts per million, you're down to 85% cognitive performance. And at about 1400 parts per million, you're down to 50% cognitive performance. What does that mean? You make more errors. You're not even aware that you're making the errors. Your judgment is poorer and you feel sleepy. So when I give a lecture to people, to audiences, I say, if you're falling asleep, it's not me. It's the carbon dioxide and the ventilation system in the room, which is always a good way to make me feel good. But um, so carbon dioxide is pretty universal. Yeah. But temperature and humidity, that's quite, um, that's quite individual. Um, and so the, the future is designing um, uh, elements of the built environment to be more uh, individualized. So we have uh, a researcher, a faculty member at the University of Arizona, Dr. Alethea Ida, 
who is developing bioresponsive materials that can be embedded in furniture and in walls to give a person their own cocoon of comfort of temperature and humidity. Uh, those are the kinds of, um, of technologies that are being developed that can be tuned to individual needs. Yeah, there's all this data that Apple has about my health, right? Collected from all these sensors. I mm -hmm. do know there's apps for heart rate uh, where you can at least see your heart rate. There is um, workout <laughs> apps. There is an app for sleep now. I think someone else developed it and Apple just integrated it. They copied it. I haven't seen one for stress or stress levels. Like ideally my, my Apple which would go off and say, Whoa. oh, you're stressed, take a deep breath for 20 minutes. No, no, you're, you're, there, there are. I mean, they're, they're not necessarily called stress. Uh, I mean, on the one that I have, I have, I'm wearing, I don't want to um, advertise any particular brand, but I'm, I'm wearing this ring. Uh, yeah. and, and it calls it resilience. Your resilience today is so-and-so. Yeah. Part of the reason for that is in order to measure heart rate variability continuously and in the moment, um, you need to be not moving. So most of these, uh, these apps, certainly the, the one that I'm wearing, um, but most of them will take a short piece of time while you're sleeping where you're relatively not moving. And you'll often see, if you look at the trace for heart rate variability, um, which is measuring the stress response and the relaxation response. If you look at the trace and you happen to have woken up in the middle of the night, there's gonna be a gap. And that's because you're moving too much. So there's movement artifact during the day that prevents these devices that are on your wrist or on your ring from measuring heart rate variability continuously. It's it's a technological thing. Yeah, oh, that's interesting, but it works at night, right? <clears throat> so it works at night, at night and in re and with research grade. So we were using research grade uh, chest worn devices where there's less of this movement artifact. Um, yeah. We were able to measure heart rate variability throughout the day, but on the commercially available um, ones that are worn on the wrist or the the finger, it's really hard to get rid of that movement artifact. It it can be done, and um, and there are some of these that are uh, available where they where they can give you the raw data and you can kind of do all kinds of algorithms to get rid of the movement artifact. But it's not something that I've seen really readily available commercially throughout the day in the moment. Yeah, understood. One of the things when we talk about peak performance, I always wonder about when we go back to the Middle Ages, it is being said that because of reasons of, of water supply, most of the drinks that actually people consumed were um, alcoholic. They weren't very strongly alcoholic, like right. what we have right beer now, 14%, and, yeah, right. but it was more like 2%, like a light beer, like a really watered-down yeah. American beer. And that's what people <laughs> would drink basically for breakfast, and they would never stop drinking it. Um, and the uh, there was an interesting movie just um, a few months ago that made that hypothesis that said, well, maybe our peak performance is at a certain promille level, and it's not zero. And I think a lot of us feel this. We, we are different people when we drink a little bit. We are terrible when we drink a lot, and we might also be terrible when we don't drink anything. But somewhere in between, we get really social, we have new ideas, we get creative. We, we kind of live in a slightly different planet. Have you seen real studies that really looked into this? If we maybe our alcohol level is too low for what our genes adapted to a thousand years ago? <laughs> 
this is not my area of expertise, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna answer this. It's an interesting hypothesis, but uh, um, you know, there's no question that you know there are studies of the Mediterranean diet, which include I think it's two glasses of red wine a day, and uh, that's you know seems to be uh, uh, healthy. It, it's again an individual an individual difference. Some people have very uh, low um, the speed they they don't metabolize alcohol very well and and so it affects them more you know there's fast uh, metabolizers and slow metabolizers so and again this is not my area of expertise so i i really can't uh, address it okay i thought it's it's fascinating it makes it also obviously eases my conscious consciousness when, <laughs> when, when i think right but typically the alcohol is watered down a lot and i think in the old greeks had that rule they would take um, Eric was telling me this, Eric Wiener, it's five times water and two times alcohol, like a typical wine that we have right now. And this sheer amount of water that you would consume at the same moment with this watered-down wine, it just makes it impossible to get really drunk. It's all, like you can't drink that much unless you have a crazy bladder. And crazy well, I mean, the, the Romans also were drinking it out of lead cups, so, you know, they got lead poisoning. So, uh, I, yeah. I, again, this is not my, my area of expertise, so yeah. I can't address it. Another question that a lot of people raise, if you've looked into psychedelics, if you talk about peak performance and things that are different in that universe, psilocybin, DMT, have you ever looked into those? No, that's, again, not my area of expertise. I deal with with integrative health, mind-body interactions. So deep breathing, tai chi, yoga, uh, all of the things that can engage that relaxation response in a natural way and, uh, and reduce your stress response, um, again, in a natural way. So, you know, there's no question that meditation uh, changes how the brain functions, it changes how the body functions. So there are many studies showing that uh, different kinds of yoga breathing uh, engage, change heart rate variability and engage the relaxation response. Uh, meditation, long-term meditators have uh, a different pattern of uh, brain function where uh, the frontal lobe, the part of the, the brain that's involved in executive function and resiliency is enhanced in long-term meditators. This is Richie Davidson has done these studies with brain imaging, with EEG. Um, and uh, that's when he started working with the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama's monks uh, to look at how his words, the Olympic athletes of meditation, how their brains function. And uh, so meditation is, is a very powerful tool to, uh, to in enhance resiliency, not only of the brain, but also of the whole body. Um, there are studies on expression, gene expression in long-term meditators, and there's no question that they are different than in, uh, in people who don't have that, uh, that uh, experience. When we, when we look into when, and yoga or meditation is, is another example, when we, um, when we look into lifespan and life expectation, how far are we with these specific technologies, right? And with the, with the research that we, we are able to see what kind of stress are we exposed to? How do we mediate it the best? 
when we think about life expectancy on average, do you think it pushes us 10, 20 years extra or, or is it just two years on average? Where do you feel? Well, are so we there, are actually, there are actually studies on this, uh, not so much on life expectancy, but on, um, on uh, chromosomal aging. So yeah. uh, on your chromosomes, there are little ends uh, of chromosomes called telomeres. It's kind of like the ends, the plastic ends of shoelaces. So as you age, the telomeres get shorter and shorter and fray, just like your plastic ends of shoelaces fray with age. And you can calculate a person's biological age by measuring the length of their telomeres. People who are chronically stressed, their telomeres can look 10 to 17 years older than their biological age. That's a lot chronic caregivers uh, of Alzheimer's patients, people who are chronically stressed. There are many studies looking at this. Uh, in contrast, or, or the flip side of that, is that these mind-body interventions can actually not only prevent that shortening of telomeres, but can reverse it. Um, so Alyssa Eppel and um, uh, Dean Ornish published a study where they looked at, actually a couple of studies, where they looked at patients who were recovering from um, prostate cancer who had been um, uh, trained on a mind-body integrative health intervention that included a healthy Mediterranean diet, meditation three times a week, and 30 minutes of walking a day. You didn't have to go to the gym and run at 90% VO2 max, just 30%, 30 minutes of walking a day. The people who followed that regime for five years, uh, well, let's reverse it. The people who did not follow that regime, uh, five years later, their telomeres continued to shorten. The people who followed that regime for five years, not only did their telomeres not shorten, but they actually began to lengthen. So, you know, you can start a healthy lifestyle, uh, integrative health uh, uh, diet and uh, exercise and uh, meditation of whatever sort. And at any time, no matter how long you've been a couch potato, and you can reverse that uh, effect of chronic stress on your aging of your telomeres. That's really good news. And I, I really <laughs> feel it's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot out there, just also living qualities, this clarity that you develop. If you if you have a healthy body, your mind also, it's obviously meditation is another way to achieve that, but you, you get more clear about what you want and what you, what you want from life. And we, we do have that, that time now, right? So either because it's COVID or we, we just, we are, we are richer, right? We don't really have to fight over shelter and food anymore, but we have the ability and the time to look into philosophy and see what the old Greeks and all the people after that were thinking about how we should lead life and it's i think it's starting it's happening maybe i'm too optimistic but i feel like a lot of people that never cared about philosophy that never cared about how should i live now suddenly say oh well maybe i should change my diet a little maybe i should should live slightly healthier go out there and do something even if i'm right. 40 50 60 right people in their 20s uh, it's a different oh, story for sure for sure and, and, and that's and really it, new yeah in the, in the PBS television special that I did, The Science of Healing, um, we actually went to Greece and we visited an Asclepion. Asclepions were all over Greece. They were um, uh, 
healing spaces. They were healing places where people came uh, to engage in these healthy activities. Um, and Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, um, uh, he uh, prescribed 60 different diets. A diet to Hippocrates was not uh, simply what you ate. It included what you ate, but it included a prescription for, uh, for exercise, for training, for social support. The reason the Asclepions all had an amphitheater as part of it is that theater was very important in, in the uh, healthy lifestyle and, and, and getting people to heal. Um, sleep was very important. Uh, belief, prayer uh, was very important. It didn't matter what you, you know, what your religious, well, of course, in ancient Greece, you believed in, in the various gods, but, but belief and prayer is very important. It's, we call it the placebo effect. Unfortunately, uh, it's the word placebo is usually preceded by the word just, but the placebo effect is not just the placebo effect. It is a very powerful effect, effect that engages brain regions that are rich in anti-pain and feel-good endorphins. They're rich in uh, feel-good dopamine uh, reward uh, pathways, um, and they affect the immune system in a positive way. So, um, so going back to ancient ancient Greece in in Western medicine, uh, there's no question that uh, there was a belief that all of these approaches helped healing. And you know, when when you think about it. Animals in the wild, uh, they didn't have surgeons and antibiotics to heal. They had to have a way of healing themselves. Um, and so the whole system of the immune system and the brain, it's all set up to help us heal. Um, however, it is important now that we have the space age modern medicine of surgery and, and antibiotics and antivirals and so on, you can't do it on your own. Um, you need these, these uh, medications to help you heal, to get rid of the cancer. But you can either help your body to work with those medications by doing what you can to reduce stress and enhance well-being, or you can work against them. And, um, and then it takes more effort for the, for the medications to do their job. Now, another thing I want to mention in this context that's very important is that in the self-help domain, people often feel if they can't do it on their own, if they can't reduce their stress, then they've failed and they feel guilty and they feel there's something wrong with them. Well, you know, you can't do it on your own necessarily. Just like, you know, an Olympic athlete needs a trainer. Um, you need a, an expert who can help you guide you through these lifestyle interventions or guide you through the uh, understanding what is causing the stress and what can, you can do to reduce it. And, and often you can't get rid of the stress. You know, we can't control everything. And certainly with COVID, everyone worldwide was stressed. We, we, couldn't, we could not get rid of that stress. But we can do small little things in our own world to help reduce that load of stress on our, our bodies and our brains. One of the things is to fool your brain into thinking that you're in some degree of control. So at the beginning of COVID, um, 
you know, people were making masks, people were going online, doing yoga uh, trainings, uh, teachers were teaching online. Uh, I turned my research to pivot to help COVID in the domain that I could help with. You know, so you're, you're never going to help the whole thing, but it's like a huge, enormous jigsaw puzzle. And uh, each little piece of the jigsaw puzzle is important for the whole thing. So if you can help a neighbor, if you can drive, if you can uh, deliver groceries to somebody who can't get out of the house, you're helping that person. You're also helping yourself and you're reducing your stress response by feeling that you're in that by, by actually getting in some degree of control. So, yeah. so I think that's important to remember. And if you can't get rid of the stress, seek help from an expert uh, who, who can help with that. Yeah. I think it's, it's surprising that we have all the, the knowledge that we've been soaking up, soaking up about living healthy and make our bodies healthy. We have this epidemic of mental illnesses suddenly, right? So we have 15 layers of technology between people. We don't talk to people. I live here in San Francisco. Nobody talks to each other. Definitely not to random people. Everyone looks down. It's like, well, did, did a nuclear bomb just go off? Well, it, maybe <laughs> COVID felt like this, but it isn't the same death rate, right? Nobody actually died. A few people in, in, in San Francisco only died, luckily enough. But it's it's the the mental impact is basically like a nuclear bomb, and it's it's it's, it's huge. The right the the out the, of control. What you just said, the the the, the ability to be in control and, and and have and take on this this challenge of post COVID voluntarily, that hasn't dawned on people yet. Maybe it's just happening, but the city has been hit hard, definitely with mental illnesses. Well, it's it's huge. The, so in the wake of the COVID viral pandemic, which killed a lot of people. Um, and in that wake, there is a pandemic of mental health, mental illness, uh, of stress, of anxiety, of depression. And there's so many causes, loss of jobs, loss of income, social isolation is a huge stressor. Um, just having to adapt to this whole new world is a huge stressor. Um, so there are many, many challenges having large families at home in a small space, having to homeschool your kids. Um, you know, isolation is a stressor and then crowding is a stressor. So there are so many stressors that different people were exposed to and are continuing to be exposed to through COVID that, um, you know, again, you can't get rid of all of it, but you can do small things in your own space to, um, to try to uh, reduce that stress. Being out in nature is one. Um, looking at nature, um, uh, planting, a lot of people have started to, to grow their own gardens and vegetables. And a lot of people have got pets, you know, dogs and cats. Yeah. Uh, so there are ways to, uh, to reduce, even a small amount of that stress can help. And again, as I said, if, you can't do it on your own. Seek help. One of the wonderful things that's happened in the medical field is that there's been this rapid transition to telemedicine. Uh, it used to be that there weren't that many doctors and health providers um, online, but now certainly with psychotherapy, you can uh, do uh, telemedicine exactly the way you and I are doing this now. Yeah, I think that's that was absolutely overdue. And I remember not too long ago, it was almost impossible to email your doctor. 
you, you could email, but they would never reply. So I don't know if they ever got the email. And then it was also impossible to get lab results from, from many places. Some were already up to date and you had to go there and take the printout, scan it yourself and write it down. So it was terrible. And I think a lot of these things finally are readjusting. So that's, that's as you say, it's yeah. a wonderful news because and there, there's a ton of iPhone apps. So I think they you, you just take a picture of whatever you have, whatever symptoms or if it's on your skin and rashes. And right. 15 minutes right. later, you get like, okay, it might be this, call me. So this right. is awesome, right? So this is finally happening. So that's a, a silver advice. a silver lining. Uh, I, I'm a big believer that uh, when when there is huge huge change, when there is catastrophe, um, humans are very um, resilient and very creative, and a lot of people worldwide stepped up to the plate and scientists all over the world turned their expertise to addressing every aspect of this pandemic. And, and there, there is going to be positive silver lining coming, coming out of it, including what we just talked about, the technologies that will help uh, long distance uh, diagnosis. And, uh, you know, just think about it if you're uh, post COVID and you're, housebound because you you can't get out you're elderly or you have some sort of illness that prevents you from going out how wonderful that you'll be able to contact your your healthcare provider via uh, the phone yeah and you can watch a lot of netflix too i'm, <laughs> I'm reaching that limit where i'm at the end of what would at least to me appeals in kind of streaming services <laughs> and it's a, it's it's become a big problem. How do how do we entertain ourselves? Right. That's that's seemingly the biggest problem now. Um, maybe that's that's the luxury, the price for this luxury. Well, I hope people will be entertaining themselves by listening to this podcast. I hope so too. I hope so too. And maybe they learn a thing or two. I, I definitely yeah. did. Um, Esther, thanks so much for coming on. That was awesome. It's really been a great pleasure, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, and we hope, I hope we get to do this again. Talk to you yes. soon. Yes. Okay. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.